You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Grab a Bible with me today and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is where we're finishing off uh, the Christmas season together. If you weren't uh, with us last week, uh, Merry Christmas and... uh, I guess the next time we'll see you after today is a new year, so we're excited also to welcome in a new year and all that uh, God will do. And so welcome here, those in Overflow, welcome as well. In Orangeville, Happy New Year to you. Um, today we're going to wrap up the Christmas season in Matthew chapter 2. Now often what happens around Christmas is Jesus is born and the angels have appeared in the sky and the star is shining and the shepherds come and then we tie up Christmas and we put it away and we move on to something else. And we don't often get to Matthew chapter two and some of the events that happen after Jesus is born. Now particularly in this chapter today, one of the things that we're gonna see is that God and the battle against evil know that something significant happens when Jesus is born because there's a suspense And there's significant things that take place after Jesus comes and God is incarnate, God with us. And so today, one of the things that we're going to see is that now that the king has come, the king must be worshipped. And he will be worshipped from every tribe and tongue and nation across this earth. Another thing that we'll see today in our passage in Matthew 2 is that not everyone will be excited that the king has come. And some will oppose him. And we'll see this particularly in Herod and his wicked plans to try and get rid of Jesus and to wipe out a generation of baby boys. But we will need to see this, church, that even in the wickedness, the glory of God incarnate coming, we need to be reminded that God cannot and will not ever be stopped. Because his plan of salvation will move forward because the glory that God brings to his name will end up at the cross. And so that nothing will ever come in the way of this plan. So put it simply, one way to think of Matthew chapter 2 is this. The king has come. You can either worship him, you can oppose him, but you cannot stop him. And so that's what we're going to see in our passage today. Allow me to pray for us as we ask for God uh, to move in our passage. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you also just for the gift of the revelation that it is to us that even now we can look to this, to know about you, to know your plan of salvation to see what happened after Christ had come. And so God, today as a church, we just pray that you'd move in our midst, uh, that your Holy Spirit would be working in our hearts and lives to show us what it looks like to worship, maybe ways that we are opposing you, and maybe to remind us with fresh eyes and to lead us to praise and worship uh, that you cannot be stopped and you will receive glory in this life and in the next because of the plan of salvation and how you will usher in a new heavens and new earth one day with continual worship. And so, Father, we thank you for Christ, Jesus. We give this time to you. We pray you'd speak to us and move in our lives that we would bring glory to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you haven't yet done so, please take out a Bible. There might be one in the seat in front of you. I'd love to be able to walk through Matthew chapter 2. Now, Today, because we're covering an entire chapter, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. We're going to hop in and out of this story to see some of the themes of what's taking place. We're going to read some of the verses uh, as we go along. So I just want to let you know that as we begin, because it's an entire chapter that's a little bit different than how we normally do it. Now, one of the things to notice in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the beginning of the New Testament, so after a long period of waiting and silence from God, 
Um, God, in the fullness of time, speaks again to his people. It's because the time had come for Christ to come. And so in Matthew chapter 1, what we find out is Matthew is giving us a genealogy of Jesus. Now, genealogy is just a family history, right? You might go to Ancestry.com, and you might type in to find out about your family history. You go to Matthew chapter 1, he's going to give you the family line of Jesus. In particular, what Matthew wants us to know about Christ is that just as we trace the family line from Abraham to David, then to Joseph, and now Joseph and Mary have Jesus, we can find out that this is all a part of God's plan. Now, the thing is, is that when you come to the end of chapter 1 and you go to chapter 2, we get from a genealogy to Jesus is born. And if you want a nice Christmas story, you go to Luke's gospel account. But here's what this tells us about Matthew. As we start chapter 2, Matthew has a very intentional purpose in mind. Why would he go from a genealogy to now post-Christ's birth, if not to tell us particular themes or perspectives of what he's trying to emphasize? And so it's important for us to recognize that as we begin Uh, chapter 2, that we recognize that Jesus has now been born, and it's because he's trying to show us something. So point number one, we're going to see this. Now that the king has come, he must be worshipped. Now that the king has come, he must be worshipped. It's a right, natural response when the king of kings shows up on the scene, when God incarnate is God with us, there must be worship from the creation to its creator. And so we're going to see that in the first couple verses, particularly in the life of the magi and how they're seeking this Jesus. I want to read for us verse 1. We're going to explain a couple characters, things going on in our story as we continue uh, to set the stage in chapter 2 today. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. We'll stop there. A couple things to note. If you look in verse 1, Matthew is confirming for us, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem in the region of Judea. So we know that this um, took place. And this is significant that Matthew is re-emphasizing this for us because Bethlehem was significant. If we go to the family line of Jesus, if we go all the way back to King David, whom God made a covenant that a king would always be from his family line because one day a king of kings or a king of Jews would come, we're reminded if David was from Bethlehem and Jesus is from Bethlehem, I wonder if there's significance there. There is significance there. And so Matthew is telling us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that was significant, going all the way back to 2 Samuel 7. Now, we also recognize in verse 1 that Herod is the king. This was something, a title that was given to him from the Romans, and so he's the king of the Jews, they would call him, over the whole region of Judea, and that is what people knew uh, at that time. Herod's in charge, Herod's the king of the Jews, he rules, he reigns, and so we're going to see that threatened today as the story continues. But we also see in verse number one this, that wise men are coming to Jerusalem. We'll come to wise men in a second, but why did they come to Jerusalem? I mean, maybe some of you in your Christmas stories, you're thinking, wow, the wise men, they go to Bethlehem because he's in my nativity set. And the verse one here in chapter two tells us the wise men go to Jerusalem. Now, in particular, we're finding out that they're following a star. So the star leads them to Jerusalem. Herod's palace is in Jerusalem. And so maybe they're wondering, new king, king of the Jews, Herod's king of the Jews. Maybe the king's been born from Herod's family line. But as we find out when they get there, Herod redirects them to a different place. 
So those are a couple of things that are important to know. Now, because wise men are part of the story that are significant here, particularly in our first point about worship to this newborn king, I want to show us three wise clarifications that can be helpful of what we know and what we don't know about the wise men, all right? Sorry if any of you get your bubbles bursted here. Point number one, wise men equals magi. These are two synonymous terms for what they were. It's equal to an astronomer or an astrologer. So they studied the stars, and then some were also led in their study of the stars to try and, psychic, in a psychic way, predict the future. This is what we think is going to happen based on what we're reading in the skies. That's what they were as wise men. Wise men or magi is not equal to kings. So Christmas songs about we three kings is not technically biblically correct. That's helpful to know here. Point number two, three gifts does not necessarily mean that we're th- three wise men. There could have been a whole caravan. There could have been a whole group of them. We don't know for sure. We naturally think three because there was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the Bible doesn't tell us how many. It just says that there was a a bunch of wise men that show up in the plural. Point number three, the unknown party size, there's the emphasis, of the wise men, they likely arrived sometime after Jesus' birth. Again, this is important to remember because depending on how you set up your nativity set at Christmas time, most academic scholars will all agree that wise men didn't show up the night Jesus was born. So maybe next year when you set it up, you can kind of put them off to a side a little bit in terms of like uh, a bit of a delay in time. But that's what we know about the wise men. And we'll see that in our story today because they show up afterwards. And Herod gives us a bit of a hint as well in terms of why he gives this two years and under in terms of time that's gone by after Christ comes. That can be helpful to know. And so if we're going to change the lyrics of the Christmas song, let's show you this next slide here. We would say maybe something like this. We unknown number of wise men are bearing gifts we traveled so far. That part is true. But maybe that's how we should be singing the Christmas song. Here's what we do know about these wise men or magi. They were relatively wealthy and prominent. And they were probably consulted in a lot of political decisions. Because maybe a ruler or someone reigning in a certain area, they would say, well, why don't we check with the wise men to see what they think based on maybe what they see see in the sky. That's what we do know. We know that they were probably affluential. We know that they see a star in the sky and they come from the east. They don't go west like some of our Christmas songs say. They go east because they come, or they go west because they come from the east. And so that's what we also know. But here's what we need to focus on in Matthew chapter 2. When Jesus is born and the Magi arrive, this is extremely significant. Now, here's why it's significant. The king of the Jews, being, let's say, Herod at the time, is now confronted with the reality that a new and real king of the Jews has been born. And the wise men come and want to worship. But what we need to understand from this part of the story is that the Jewish people, Israel, had been longing and waiting for the Messiah. This goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. When God shows up to Abraham and Sarah, who were barren at the time, no children, and God makes a promise to them and says, Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to make you a promise because I am bringing a fulfillment of how I will be glorified through you and your family line. God promises them a couple different things in the Abrahamic covenant. He promises them new land, a promised land for their family to dwell in. He promises them a family with children as numerous as the stars in the sky and, and sand on the seashore in terms of just saying, here's the size of your family. But he also promises them at the end of this covenant that you and your family will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Now, at the time, they probably didn't understand what that meant in its fullness. But as we read throughout scripture, we get a bigger picture of what that means. That Christ would come not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. 
for every single nation on earth. And so when Christ arrives in our passage and is born, it's significant that the wise men come because it's signaling for all of us who read and for the world that Christ has come and the gospel of Jesus is one that transcends any nation, race, language, life experience, social status. It's come one, come all to Jesus to worship. All right, so this is why it's significant. Now, as the story begins, the wise men are looking for where do we worship Jesus. And it's significant because, as I mentioned, now everyone has access to Christ. If you're familiar with some of the letters of Paul, this was something that the Jewish people struggled with. They thought this coming Messiah would be just for them. And now if they're hearing parts of the story or reading this in Matthew's gospel account, they're maybe being reminded that Christ was, the Messiah was supposed to come for us. And then later on in Paul's ministry, the Apostle Paul, he's teaching and preaching about this Jesus Christ. And the Jews are struggling with this. They're struggling that Paul would say that Christ has come for Jews and Gentiles. And so that leads Paul to write in, the, in his letter to uh, the Galatians that no longer is there any slave nor uh, free or Jew or Gentile or male or female. And Paul's not saying there's now no distinction. You're all the same in Christ Although it sounds similar, what he's saying is that there's oneness in Jesus. There's no more barriers. There's no more boundaries. It's everyone can come to Christ. And so later in Romans chapter 11 as well, they're struggling with this. And Paul says to the, to the Jewish people that God has come for also the Gentiles. And then he writes in that chapter and says to the Gentiles, and you need to remember that God chose Israel as his family line to bring the Savior to the world. But now what's true in Christ is that by faith in this Jesus, the King of the Jews, the King of kings and Lord of lords, through faith in him, all can be grafted into the family line of God. And that's the beautiful truth of the gospel. But that's also why it's significant now that the Magi come looking for Jesus. And so maybe in your life as you're reading this story, we need to be reminded too that it's it's not just about the multitude of angels you know, trying to read into the significance of that. It's not about Mary and Joseph necessarily or lowly shepherds who get to see Jesus first. It's not even about these Gentile star observers. It's about the fact that God is looking for worshipers and worshiping in spirit and truth and there's no more barriers for those who long to do this. And so now as we come to verse 10, uh, as the wise men are on this pursuit, they come and they ask Herod, where do we find him? We'll come back to that shortly. But in verse 10, they are told to go to Bethlehem, and they get there. And look what it says. As they are looking to worship this new king, when, the, when they saw the star, because they've been, they've been following a star that marked the location of where they could find him, they rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. Now, that reminds me of like when the angels show up to the shepherds on the night Jesus was born, and they say, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day. And so the wise men come, and they're led to the place where Christ is, and they are filled with rejoicing exceedingly, and they're filled with joy. And look what the verse says next. It says, and going into the house, there's another reason why it could have been later, they saw the child with, his, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down, and they worshiped him. And then they bring him gifts as well. And so their longing to come and worship is because when Christ has come, He must be worshipped. 
He must be worshipped by every tribe, tongue, nation, language. And so these magi see the star. They know it's significant that they want to follow to find the new king of the Jews that had been prophesied about. They're finally told the location. They finally get to the location. And they see this Christ. And they're filled with joy and rejoicing. And they fall down in worship. I mean, what a beautiful picture of what God gives us in the opportunity or invites us to when we recognize the significance of Christ. And so the wise men get there, and it says they also bring him gifts. Verse 11 says this, that as they fall down in worship, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now just think about those gifts for a moment. Think about being the wise men wondering, what do we bring this new king of the Jews? I mean, offering someone of royalty gifts was significant. It was accepted. It was even expected. You come to a newborn king, you bring them something. But I just wonder, like, how do you decide what to bring someone who has everything at his expense? Maybe that wasn't a thought that they had, but maybe that's a thought that we have. And yet they come and they worship because they're communicating as they lay these gifts down. There's nothing in my life that is a barrier to worship to Jesus Christ. Is that something that you could say? God, there is nothing in my life that I would not lay down in order to worship you. I give it to you. I surrender it to you. You know, as we sang, I counted up the cost and I just lay it down because nothing on, in this earth is of value than to worship you. And so they fall before Christ and they worship. Now, point number two is this. So we're going to go back a few verses to find out uh, what exactly Herod's response was. Because not everyone is excited about Christ. Not everyone is drawn to worship. This is something true in our story. This is something true today. That not everyone recognizes that Christ is the rightful reigning king in our lives. And so point number two, the king has come and he will be opposed. We're going to see this by Herod. He wants nothing to do with this Jesus, the so-called king of the Jews. And so he will be opposed. Now as the wise men come to Jerusalem... I'm going to go back a few verses here, maybe to verse 7, where you can see they show up and they talk to Herod. They're coming to want to worship. And they say, where's this newborn king of the Jews? And you can see in verse 3, Herod is not happy. He's being asked, what do you mean, where's the king of the Jews? I'm standing right before you. And they're alluding to somebody else. And it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Another way of saying this, he's greatly distressed. He becomes nervously paranoid. He starts planning and plotting something that he can do. And so he's upset, and it says, and all Jerusalem with him. Maybe they're wondering who's coming to disrupt our nation, disrupt a good thing that we got going here. And so Herod's response here in this moment is to react and begin to scheme and plan, I need to deal with this because I oppose the thought of a Jesus on site. After all, we shouldn't be surprised by this. This was the plan of God all the way back in Genesis, that one day he would bring a savior Messiah to the world to crush the head of the serpent. And it's something that we shouldn't be surprised by throughout scripture as well. And so one of the things that we start to see in these verses here is that when God becomes incarnate, obviously Satan becomes infuriated. Herod's response to their question is to gather some leaders together. You can see in verse 4, he assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, <coughs> these were the Jewish leaders, and he inquires for them where Christ would be born. These wise men are asking me where to find the king of the Jews. I thought I was. Apparently I'm not. Where is this king of the Jews? He gathers these religious leaders together. And they say, well, of course. It's, it's prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem. And so they send the wise men off to Bethlehem, hopefully to find 
what they're looking for. But I want to stop in this part of the story. Maybe you've noticed what is significant here, that after he assembles and inquires of them where Christ was to be born, look at verse 5. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, and then for so it is written by the prophet. But we can stop there. There's nothing that gives any indication to think that these scribes, religious leaders, these know-it-alls of the Old Testament and the Torah were compelled to go and be inquiring of what this king was. You know, that should be a warning for us, perhaps, because as we read this, there's irony in the concept that although they knew, it never led them to a place of worship. You know, there should have been all these red flags and warning bells going off when the wise men show up asking these questions to Herod. Herod comes and consults them. They're thinking, oh, this sounds familiar. There's people from the east coming. They're coming. What, what, are they riding camels? They're bringing gifts. Did you ask what kind of gifts they are? All these red flags for these know-it-alls should have been leading them to the place of saying, we need to go and inquire as well. In fact, one of the prophecies hundreds of years before from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 60 says this. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah and those from Sheba, that's out towards the Arabian desert, towards east, shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. I mean, all the bells should be going off here thinking, that checks a box, that checks a box. Okay, we got to go. This sounds like maybe it's go time. And yet all they do is respond to Herod and say, yep, in Bethlehem, send them off because they don't want anyone to disrupt what they have going on in Jerusalem. And that should be a stark warning for us, maybe in our own lives. Maybe you've grown up in the church and you just have been attending church regularly for many years in your life. You know a lot of answers. You can give Bible verses to theological questions. Maybe even currently now you are in a group, you're serving, you come to prayer meetings, your life is filled with all kinds of righteous and very noble things, and yet maybe what's been happening in your life is that all of this is not leading to the worship of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're reading part of the story and thinking, you know, these people should have been led to want to be there on the front lines, to want to go worship. I mean, just to check it out, just to see Maybe if we just stop long enough in our lives, we think, you know what, maybe that's me a little bit. When's the last time I've been led to a genuine place of worship with all that I know of Christ? Maybe you're relatively new to Christ, and the same thing is true to you, that as you are revealed about who God is, it should lead you to a place of worship. And this is what the wise men are displaying for us. One commentator says this, it's a dangerous thing to know the word and to fail to respond. And so we see how the religious leaders in verse 4 here are indifferent to the fact that the king of kings has come. But we're going to see in Herod as well as he catches wind of this new king of the Jews and how he takes it to a whole new level of opposition. Opposition to Christ is not something that we should be surprised by, as I mentioned earlier in Scripture. In fact, much of Jesus' ministry on earth years later would be marked by this. Just in the Gospels alone, I want to show you some verses that talk about uh, even just taking the words to destroy him as a plan of what they wanted to do to Jesus. Matthew chapter 2.13, Herod's about to search for the child and destroy him. We're coming to this. 
Matthew 12, 14, the Pharisees went down and conspired uh, against him, how to destroy him. And in Mark 3, the Pharisees also joined with those, the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Mark eleven eighteen, 18, the chief priests and the scribes, they heard it. They were seeking for a way to destroy him. In Luke 19, 47, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men, I mean, who's left in the city, they're all seeking to destroy him. Opposition to Christ is not something that should surprise us. And I, and I think I would guess, too, in your life today, in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood, opposition to Christ is something you just see all around you. We are called and invited to worship, but some will oppose him. And so now if we go to verse 13, <coughs> we're told of what this opposition looks like from Herod's perspective. Because he wants nothing to do with Christ. In fact, he wants to try and get rid of him. Earlier on, he tells the wise men, I want you to go to, uh, to Bethlehem, find out where the child is, do your worship thing, then come back and report to me so I too may go and worship him. Yeah, right, we're suspicious, right? When we come to verses 13, 15 here, we find out that some of his plan, particularly at the end of 13, as the angels appear to Mary and Joseph and tip them off with a red flag, do you need to flee now? You need to go to Egypt where it'll be safer for you than to be here in Bethlehem. Why? Because Herod is seeking for the child and looking for a way to destroy him. In the next verses that follow, 16 to 18, Herod takes it to another level because as the wise men go and worship Christ, what happens is an angel appears to the wise men in a dream and says, don't go back the same way. Go home a different way because Herod is seeking to kill and to destroy Jesus and they do this obediently. But when Herod finds out, he takes his opposition to the next level. I was going to try and conspire of how to kill Jesus. That didn't work out. They tricked me. He becomes furious. And now there's collateral because of his opposition. And so in these verses, it tells us something horrific that happens. Verse 16, when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that was ascertained from the wise men. It's easy for us to read this part of the story and just think, how could someone do something so wicked? To kill a generation of baby boys because you're trying to eliminate one because you're threatened in your ego and in your pride of your reign on the throne. This is something Herod did through his entire family. He killed his sons, he killed his wife. He was always threatened by someone that they would take his throne. And so now when we read about this, we're led to a place of thinking, how could this happen? And yet, church, I wonder that if we stopped long enough, we would also, and looking back, would also look at our world today and say, but that's not so different than what we see. Opposition to Christ, there's all kinds of examples where people take life just in the name of, of maybe retaliation or what they have justified as fair and true, and they oppose Christ as well. And yet in both of these examples, past and in our world today, in every situation, it's always a creature rebelling against the creator whose rightful reign and rule in your life is to say, no, God, I know best, I know better, I want it my way, I don't need you, you don't need my worship, I won't give it to you. And so sometimes when we look in our lives or through stories of scripture, we are confronted with situations or examples where this opposition is directly against Jesus. I mean, the gospels would be a good example of this, opposition to Christ. 
But sometimes in our lives, opposition to Jesus comes to the form of those who love him and have faith in Jesus. I'm sure there's examples that you can think of in your life too of where those, have, those in your life have opposed you because you love Christ. And yet we need to be reminded that in those moments, although it's painful and difficult and hard and discouraging on some days, be reminded of John 15, verse 18, where Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In fact, Jesus alludes to the idea that it hates you because you love me. And so though in our passage today, Herod is initiating this opposition to Christ that is evil and wicked, we must remember that even in our world today too, as we look around at different examples, opposition to Christ and all the evil choices of our world, nothing will ever be able to stop God. And so you can plan and conspire and do whatever acts of disobedience against God, thinking you're making a difference, but you can never stop God from getting glory and worship that he longs for and is jealous of. And so as we consider now this third truth of what happens when the king comes, I want to do this by highlighting four particular verses in our chapter where prophecy is fulfilled so as to lead us to a place of saying, wow, God is intentional and purposeful and has a will and a desire in this moment of Jesus' life. So point three, the king has come and he cannot be stopped. Nothing in this chapter or plan of of salvation history is outside of God's control and purview. He's always reigning. He's always in control. And so in this this chapter here, I want to point to you four of these verses. We're going to walk through them. I want to just explain what exactly is significant about them. We're going to put them on the screen as well because I want you to see what the prophecy is and then how it's fulfilled also. And the first one happens in verse 6. So if you have your Bible, look in verse 6 here. Because as Matthew is telling the story, he's trying to help his readers understand God's intentionality in the early moments of Jesus' life. And so as the details to us maybe just seem trivial, and we read them through and never thought about them, Matthew would say, go back, go back. Did you miss that? Do you see why that is significant? Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. Matthew says here that there's a Savior who has been born in Bethlehem. And that would be significant because in verse 5 and verse (coughs) 6, it's a fulfillment of the prophet. Which prophet? The prophet Micah. In chapter 5, verse 2 of Micah, Matthew requotes him. He's now, this time, he's emphasizing Bethlehem again. He says, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the Savior would be born in Bethlehem, and then he tells us in his account he was born in Bethlehem, and this was to fulfill the prophets. <coughs> Next verse, verse 15. As we come to this part of the story, we see two again. As Herod is planning to kill Jesus through the wise men's return back to, uh, uh, to Jerusalem, that the angel appears and says to the wise men, go, leave, and then tells Mary and Joseph, you need to go to Egypt and leave because it's not safe. <coughs> Excuse me. And so what we're understanding here is that there's a prophecy in 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 Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And just like God's people Israel would have looked back and thought, hey, we have a very significant part of our history where we were slaves in Egypt and God saved us and freed us from the Egyptians in the Exodus, led us to the promised land. You're telling me that as well, that now Jesus is going to live for a while in Egypt and then you will call him out of Egypt as well to return to the land of Galilee? That sounds significant. Next prophecy, <coughs> verse 18, we have a prophecy fulfilled when Herod is planning this, um, just this killing of all the baby boys. 
that the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 15, has a prophecy that looks back on Israel's history that says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel was married to Jacob, who gave birth to Benjamin, and out of the exodus on the way to the promised land in Israel's history, she's giving birth to Benjamin, and she loses her life. And so some of her last words were mourning over the child she would not get to see grow up. And this was mourning for the people of Israel, and Jeremiah prophesies back to that, but also forward to the idea that in the future, Israel will mourn again because of something in the family line of Israel. And so when Herod plans this, we recognize, too, that there's now a fulfillment of prophecy because as Herod takes the life of the baby boys, Israel mourns again like in the ages past. And the last prophecy, after it's safe for Mary and Joseph and Jesus to return back to the region of Galilee, we're reminded of a prophecy. It says in verse 23, so was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. It's important to notice that here Matthew is quoting some prophets. He doesn't tell us what it was, and there's actually a little bit of a lack of consensus as to specifically what prophecy, but we're reminded of prophecies in chapter 9, verse 1 of Isaiah, where we read about this region of Galilee who has now seen a glorious future. For the people who have walked in darkness get to see a great light, for a king has come. Chapter 11, verse 1 as well, famous Christmas passage. From the stump of Jesse will come a shoot. Now what's interesting about that wording is that the Hebrew word for shoot and Nazareth or Nazarene are the same sounding type of word. So again, as people are reading this part of the story, they're thinking he's returning to Galilee, he'll be called a Nazarene. All these prophecies being fulfilled show us how intentional God was being in this part of the story. Why? Because you cannot stop God from his plan and his will of glory. And that's seen in the early days of Jesus' life. You know, one of the things I love about biblical theology as we get to read God's story as one book is we get to see some of these themes and these threads on a deeper level. I want to show you one last example in part of the story here where part of these details would have led God's people to say, this has to be on purpose. It's too much of a chance for us to say, accident, accident. And they are led in to draw close and to worship and to wonder. I want us to see this through memories of Moses. As you look at what happens with Herod in planning and Jesus and his family going to Egypt and then getting called out of Egypt to return to Galilee, some of what's going on is so significant for us that we have to recognize, again, nothing will stop God because this has all been his plan. In the Old Testament, <coughs> we've been reading about how God's people, Israel, were the Jews. Now in our story, as the wise men come, we're confronted with this new reality that's for the Jews and Gentiles to be welcomed as God's people. Location in the Old Testament was predominantly Egypt before the Exodus. It was significant for them. In this story, it goes to Egypt and then comes out again, and God establishes Jesus' earthly ministry in Galilee and in the region of Israel. God's prophet, priest, and king in the Old Testament was Moses. It was the one that the Jewish people looked back to in the Torah. They would have said, that is our prophet, priest, and king that God has given us. And now you're telling us there's a new and greater prophet, as Hebrews 8 talks about. Evil opposer in the Old Testament was Pharaoh. The evil opposer in the New Testament is Herod. <laughs> the evil plan in the Old Testament with Pharaoh was to kill the baby boys two and under. 
Maybe that will control God's people Israel, limit them in what God was doing in growing this family according to the promise he made Abraham and Sarah. In the New Testament, it's a similar detail as well. Herod wants to kill the baby boys two and under. That sounds like what happened in our history as God's people. But ultimately, God's plan in the Old Testament to save his people Israel from Egypt and lead them to the promised land, to grow them as a family, to protect them, watch over them, was because one day he would send Jesus, <coughs> who too with his family would go to Egypt and then be called out of Egypt into something incredibly glorious. You know, church, as we read this part of the story in Matthew chapter 2, we're read and we're led to details like this to say, wow, like Israel, like Jesus, now for us, we start to see all these connections that lead us to something incredible. You know, the wise men knew in this part of the story as they see the star and as they studied and followed and as they fall down in worship, they knew something significant had happened. They knew that the real king of the Jews had shown up. And the reason why this is significant is because it wasn't even their ethnic savior. And yet they knew that this king was worthy of worship and required them to come and to bow and to give gifts because he was the true king the world had been waiting for. And so as we come to Matthew chapter 2, we see the king has come. And he's born as a baby, but we see that the details that happen after Christ's birth are so significant because nothing would stop God from sending Jesus to the cross. That's why the baby had come. He was born to die. He wouldn't die by Herod. He would die according to God's plan and purpose as he gives himself up as a ransom for many. And so as we come through chapter 2 here and as we get ready for chapter 3, as Jesus is almost ready to begin his earthly ministry, we are finding such significance in the fact that the nations come to worship. They come to worship because the gospel of Jesus is one that says, come one, come all to worship Christ. And that through faith in him, his perfect life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, you too can have eternal life. And so at the end of this chapter, maybe today, we're thinking a number of different questions. Am I worshiping Christ like the wise men come? Is there in me a same awe and reverence and wonder for the king of kings? Because God will get his worship. Or maybe in your life a question today is to say, is there anything that is opposing the worship of Jesus Christ? Maybe it's how I'm living life. Maybe it's how I'm making decisions. Maybe there's something or someone that has taken the place in my worship of Christ, I'm pushing back on God's reign in my life. Because know this today, as we've seen in Matthew 2, you cannot stop God. You could plan or conspire, you can run as long as you want, but nothing will stop God from getting his glory. And so as we come to the end of chapter 2, we recognize that Jesus has now set the stage for his earthly ministry. He settles in Nazareth, a humble place to begin. And God would eventually, some 30 years later, call him that the time is now. Miracles, healings, teachings like the Beatitudes to draw people in to recognize that you're the king of kings. And you will be worshipped. And nothing can stop you. Let's pray. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beautiful reminder that nothing stops you. It was your will to send Christ. <laughs> it was your will to 
carry him to the cross. It was your will that he would be crucified. It was your will that he'd be resurrected. And as we read in your word, you will come again. And so, Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are worthy of worship. God, we confess to you that there are times in our lives when we think we are worthy of worship. And so we thank you for the example in Matthew 2 of what that looks like to come and to journey and to fall before you and say, God, nothing in my life is of value that separates me and you in the worship that you are due. Father, I pray that some here today would be led to greater levels of praise. Just knowing that Christ came as a baby but went to the cross for salvation for them. That maybe some here today haven't recognized the significance of Christmas, the baby that went to the cross, and they too would be wondering, how is it that God would love me enough with such intentionality and purpose to send Christ to the cross? Lord, I pray there be forgiveness in Jesus today. But Lord, ultimately, we thank you for the promises in your word that are always yes and amen. You always fulfill your prophecies. It's always about you. You will get your worship, and nothing can stop you. Would that lead us then in our lives to bring you praise? And we pray all this in the name of Jesus.